Good morning. It's good to be here this morning. I uh, started chuckling before I got up here. I thought, well, I don't really know. This is the first time I've been up here in quite some time uh, since the virus took over the world and wasn't sure how I would like all that camera equipment staring at me all the time I was up here, but I guess uh, guess that officially makes all the teachers here, t uh, tele-preachers, tele TV preachers, since we're being uh, televised uh, every Sunday, but it's good to be here this morning, and um, this morning I uh, am completely confident that each of you here and those joining us via Facebook Live are just about as worn out about this virus ordeal as I am. It dominates the news, it is in conversation daily, and it just, I'm really ready for it to just go away. And I was thinking about, um, back in March, I had a conversation with someone, and we were concerned about how long the virus had been in the news cycle back in March, and here we are in whatever month this is, and uh, it just won't go away, and I'm really ready for it to do so. You know, typically things in the news are gone about as soon as they come, and that hasn't been the case. Our lives have been significantly disrupted by the coronavirus. You know, disruption is something that is typically fascinating to me. We talk about disruption in the marketplace with a product or a technology that completely changes the way that somebody does their job or the way that people transact business from that point forward. A, uh, a good example of that is your cell phone. You know, if you take my phone away, as much as I hate to admit it, and I really, really do, but I'm almost helpless without my cell phone, and we've been conditioned uh, to, to be that way. You know, there's so much convenience that is packed into that little gadget that, you know, um, if I don't have my phone, I can't call anybody and connect with somebody and talk to them, you know, at that moment. Uh, for those that I don't really want to talk to, I don't have the ability to just send them a text message. And for those that I don't want to talk to but have more to say than a text message, I can't send them a little fancy voice message. You know, there's so much convenience there that, um, you know, another good example is the map feature and the GPS. You know, without that device, I can't get anywhere. I've lived here seven years and I still daily use my GPS to get, you know, places that, that I haven't, for the most part, been before. Uh, but, you know, things like, uh, it's just amazing how technology revolutionizes the world. You know, we used to use uh, Garmin GPSs and MapQuest. And, you know, MapQuest, uh, I don't even know if either of those really exist anymore, but MapQuest was really handy. You could punch in, you know, where you were going on your computer and print out, you know, uh, pages of turn-by-turn uh, -turn directions, and it worked really, really well, unless you got halfway through your trip and you wanted to change your plans, and then you just had to throw the map away. So it's kind of bizarre to think that that's how, you know, not very long ago, because I, you know, used it, uh, that that's that's how it was and it's just it's kind of interesting to think about but would you agree that our lives have been disrupted not by a technology or a product or a means of travel but by the virus church isn't the same work isn't the same 
schools may or may not reopen. And it's just become a really weird world uh, relative to the one that we were accustomed to not very long ago. And I'll tell you this morning that uh, for the most part, I've experienced it. I've experienced that disruption with a negative attitude. I, you know, from the small conveniences um, all the way to the really tough decisions at work, I have uh, put on a really good front for my family and, you know, employees and customers. But the truth is I've, I've faced it with a lot of neg negativity because I've seen it, the disruption, as an atomic bomb that really radically, you know, disrupted everything that, you know, the life that I had become comfortable with. Uh, right before the world really shut down, there was things that I've been working really hard for for years that were finally starting to come together, and then seemingly overnight it was all, you know, uh, disrupted and, and it all changed. And so this study uh, has really led me to a different perspective, um, one that is much more optimistic, and that's what I want to share with you this morning. And really the punchline that I want you to take home with you, if, if you don't hear anything else, as people sometimes say, is, is this. God has used disruption to people's lives throughout all of history to create opportunities for a turning point. Who is in a quick example that you can think of that was a disruptor? And the first one that came to my mind was the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul was an extremely devout. We talk about Paul all the time. Of course, we read the things that he wrote all the time. There's so much of our Christian lives that are influenced by Paul and his inspired writing and, and, and the things that, that he taught. Paul was, you know, a devout Jew. He was highly educated. You know, he, he was uh, so intensely focused on destroying what Christ, the onset of Christianity and what Christ had had, had uh, taught. And it was through divine disruption that Paul became uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, verse 3 through 4, it says, And he was traveling. It happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from the heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We can read on and we see the conversion of Paul that it literally took Jesus in front of his face to disrupt the path that he was on. The Bible tells us that he was struck blind for three days, but really his worldview, if you think about it through the eyes of Saul before he became Paul, was completely changed, you know, overnight. And so it was that immediate uh, confrontational divine disruption that changed and altered the course of Paul and led him to do, you know, all the great things that, that we talk about all the time. And um, so Paul is one example. What are some other quick examples of times in the Bible where God used disruption? Uh, how about Noah and the flood? God really disrupted the world then, didn't he? Basically, I mean, he wiped it out except for Noah and his family and a, a few animals. What about the plagues that came upon the Egyptians when uh, Moses was trying to lead the Israelites out of slavery? Those plagues were disruptive, highly disruptive to their lives, and it took that to make a change. 
So let's look at two people in the New Testament who brought disruption and really um, mixed things up. The first I want to look at is John the Baptist. That verses. Uh-oh. Well, it looks like I didn't save my PowerPoint uh, before I saved it, so we'll go semi-old school this morning. And, uh, John the Baptist came as a precursor to Jesus to prepare the way for him. In Mark, the first chapter, if you want to look with me, there it talks about John the Baptist. What kind of guy do you think John the Baptist was? Mark chapter 1 gives us a little bit of insight. Beginning in verse 2, it says, it is writ- As it is written in I- Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare a way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 4 it says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John, this gives us a depiction of John here. It says he was clothed, clothed with, a camel's, with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Do you think that John the Baptist was a tender and soft-spoken guy who was just gently trying to inform the Jews that Jesus was about to come and completely turn the world upside down? That's not what the Bible says at all. In Luke uh, chapter 1, speaking of John the Baptist, beginning in verse 16, it says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children of a disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It references and says that John the Baptist was in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Who was Elijah? Elijah was a mighty prophet that we can read about in First and Second Kings. And King Ahab and his wife Jezebel uh, ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel at the time. And they were both evil people. They had temples built, and they uh, were promoting idolatry, and idolatry had really become entangled in in religion, and and it was just a a really uh, bad time uh, in Israel at that time. And Elijah challenged that, was sent by God to challenge that in a really, really big way. King, King Ahab actually called him a troubler of Israel. And Elijah exposed their idolatry by challenging them to prove the deity of their idol Baal. So essentially what happened is 
they, Elijah challenged them to set up an altar. They were going to make a sacrifice to their God, and Elijah was going to make a sacrifice. And or I'm really, they, they placed uh, wood and some things on the altar, and the idea was that whoever's God was, who, whose God existed, it, they would call down fire and everything would be burned up in the altar. And so the Bible says that there were 450 prophets of Baal, the idol, and that they put everything on the altar, they began praying to Baal and asking him to call down fire and to, you know, light it, and it just went on and nothing happened. And you can read in, in I believe it's 1 Kings, where uh, Elijah literally begins to taunt them about it. And it says that they were frantically uh, prophesying and praying and nothing happened. And Elijah tells him, he says, you know, what's, what's the problem? You know, is, is Baal, I mean, surely he's a god. It says, you know, is he asleep? Do, do you need to wake him up? Is he traveling? Is he busy? And so he literally is taunting these people, and nothing happens, of course. And then Elijah tells them to pour water over the altar and the wood and everything. And it says they poured so, they poured so much water three or four times that the trenches around the altar uh, had water in them. And then he called down, he called to the Lord, the Lord sent fire down and burned everything up on the altar, including the water that was in the trenches around the altar. And so just to add insult to injury, uh, the Bible tells us that they rounded up those 450 prophets of Baal and they killed all of them under you know, the, the command of Elijah then. God, Elijah was used by God to make a very bold statement at that time and to disrupt the wickedness that was in Israel at the time. And the Bible says that John the Baptist came in the spirit and in the power and the likeness of Elijah. He really came to mix things up ahead of Christ. At the time, the Jews were very happy with their religion before John the Baptist came and disrupted everything and really got in their face. Look at what he told them while he was preaching in the desert in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, <clears throat> beginning in verse 7, John the Baptist speaking here says, He said there, of John the Baptist's his words, he said, He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin by saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up the children of, for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore does not bear every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It was pretty direct and in the face. How would you like it if, you know, I came up here today and said, you're basically all a bunch of snakes, you know? It would get your attention, and then he went on, you know, to, to really call them out for them holding on to their traditions and, and telling them, you know, uh, that basically that their religion was changing, you know, and then we know that Jesus came and, and did that. And so if, you know, John the, ba the Baptist was really a major disruptor for the Jews at that time, but really the master of disruption was Jesus himself. Again, the Jews were 
happy with their customs. They were happy with their traditions and the, the hierarchy, the structure that they had at the time. And they didn't warmly welcome Jesus uh, because he upset so much of what they held on to. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Jesus was seen with tax collectors. Jesus defended a prostitute. You know, he uh, was breaking all of the religious rules and he didn't mind telling the religious leaders exactly what he thought of them. In Matthew 21, he went into the temples um, and flipped over the tables. We're familiar to account of when Jesus went in there and there were uh, people taking advantage of those that had traveled you know, and come to the temple to make sacrifices. And there were money changers there that were exchanging currency from foreign lands that you know, could have been used uh, you know, with, could have been tainted with idolatry and they were exchanging the money and they were selling doves and animals for sacrifice at a hefty markup. And Jesus came in there and upset them. Uh, so, them in general, the Jews in general, he upset them so much that as we all know, they killed him for it. He really called a lot of people out during his ministry. In Matthew 23, we can find an account of exactly that, of Jesus preaching, and we refer to this as the seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees, and Jesus is preaching, and he is just grilling these people. I mean, he is most, mostly calling them out for their hypocrisy. He says that over and over, but what he tells them in verse 27 is really uh, just a... Uh, the illustration is really, to me, sums up how he felt about them. Verse 27, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but, are, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And, you know, Jesus, again, and through his teachings and some of the things that he did, he really didn't mess around. And it really infuriated the Jews at that time. Jesus overthrew the entire religious system of that time. And I want to look at one thing briefly here uh, that I find interesting, um, specifically of the things that Jesus disrupted. One thing that I find interesting, it's not really the focal point of his ministry. It's just something that I came across, and, and, uh, and it's interesting to me. You know, the, the temple was something that, was very special to the Jews. I mean, even though they, uh, you know, were taking advantage of people in it and all that, the building itself, you know, the, the structure, what it stood for, it was very important to them. It was a, a really a staple of their religion. I want you to reference, and I don't know if, well, we'll eventually catch up to uh, my PowerPoint here. <coughs> um, I want you to notice the reference to the stones of the temple in Mark chapter 13, Mark chapter 13, it says, And he came out, and sorry, and as he came out of the temple, he being Jesus, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus prophesied that 
the temple would be destroyed, and we know that later it was. But look at what he said, and uh, what Peter said in First Peter chapter two. Verse 4, it says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, in the, sight of the, uh, in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I find it interesting that the temple, uh, you know, it, it was, again, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, Paul tells us that, that uh, we are the temple of God. And so the concept of us or them being the temple a- instead of the temple itself or the church as we know it today was so unfamiliar to them at that time and so uncomfortable to that time. That's one of the many things that you know, he changed and that he disrupted and, and that um, he radically disrupted and changed their world. So what does all this have to do with us? <clears throat> what are some things that we can look at our own disruption today and draw some parallels to the disruption in the Bible and the things that Jesus disrupted? And as I was thinking about this, I, a uh, long time ago, I was probably, I don't know, I was 12, 13, 14 years old, and I had put this little study together uh, that was called uh, Jesus, the Divine Paradox. And I was really fascinated by uh, uh, this idea of, of Jesus being a paradox. And a paradox is simply uh, something that is seemingly impossible, but in fact, it's actually true. And I can't remember anything, any of the points except for one. Uh, and it was that uh, Jesus was led to the slaughter as a lamb but yet he is called the good shepherd. And so if you think about that, it's you know, seemingly how can the, 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 the lamb that is slain also be the shepherd? And so in thinking about this, um, I guess you call it a paradox, whatever you want, it's related to that is that Jesus' disruption brings us comfort. And really the disruption of our lives as Christians should actually be more comforting than it is uh, seen as as disruption or, or worrisome to us. And so I want to just share a couple of things I thought about uh, in my incomplete PowerPoint here. It uh, doesn't have all the notes, but there's a few bullet points there. The first thing that should give us comfort that Jesus did is he removed the old law and he gave us a better way. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a, a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Why did Christ bring the new covenant? There's a lot of reasons, but I think I like uh, <clears throat> John chapter 10. verse 10 says the thief thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly 
by Jesus coming and removing the old law and giving us the new law that we, you and I, you know, follow today, that should bring us comfort. Secondly, he promised that the Holy Spirit would be with us after he left. In John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You will know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And in John chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, he talks again about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. It says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the all guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Christ hasn't left us alone. He's given us the Holy Spirit to help us along the way. And finally, Christ promises, promises us that he has gone to prepare a place for us. And we can find that in, again in John chapter 14, this time in verses 2 through 3. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it is not so, what I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you myself, that where you am, that where I am, you may be also. So Christ has, has promised that um, he's prepared a place for us, and again, that should bring us comfort. You know, another thing Rachel and I were talking about on the way to church is um, in times of crisis, and I alluded to it a minute ago, uh, it's comforting as Christians when, you know, the world is really disrupted, then we're really, the, 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 the stability and the things that God has promised us really become clear uh, during those times. You know, just like when Elijah when, he, when you know, he drew a clear distinction between God and the idol Baal, and it was plainly evident for them to see at that time that Baal was nothing more than an idol that had no power whatsoever, and it quickened them and turned them back to God at that time. And I think that in times of crisis, as Christians, that's the opportunity we have as well, to see with more clarity the things that God provides to us. So what are we supposed to do during times of disruption? Well, I didn't have that on there either, I guess. Well, yeah, I'll have to look at the mountain for a few more minutes. So the first thing, I think, is that we shouldn't lose heart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, Paul encourages the Corinthian church by saying, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And what he was talking about there is he was contrasting this, what he calls light affliction. You know, they were dealing, being persecuted and dealing with different things, and, and um, he calls it light affliction in comparison to the reward, to the light, to the things that they had to look forward to. And again, he references the eternal weight of glory. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, he does the same uh, to them 
in Galatians it says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And then the very next verse leads me to my, the second thing I think that we should focus on. He says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I think the second thing that we should do in times of crisis or disruption is we should leverage that crisis uh, as, and find opportunities to be of service to other people. You know, there are so many people right now uh, that are looking for an anchor. You know, we often talk about uh, reaching out to someone in, in a time of, of struggle in their life. Maybe, you know, there's been a death in the family or somebody's sick and, you know, we see them over there struggling with that and we think, you know, we could reach out at this time while our heart is softened and be of service and, and um, influence them and help them in that way. And the reality is uh, <laughs> there's kind of a blanket crisis uh, with everybody now. It's not isolated cases of that. Everybody today is experiencing some sort of disruption in their life. Uh, and obviously there's a spectrum. There's some people who, you know, it's mostly been just uh, basic inconveniences uh, like, you know, wearing a mask when we go in somewhere, or, um, you know, not being able to go sit down in, in our favorite restaurant and have a meal. But on the opposite end of that spectrum, it's really, really tough. There's people losing their businesses and their homes and, you know, their jobs and, uh, and really other things going on that are far uh, more heart-wrenching than that that people have, have experienced uh, uh, during this time. And so even though there's a spectrum, there are people everywhere who are looking for that stability that Christ offers, and we can be that vessel that, that helps uh, bring that into their lives. So um, in studying and looking at that, I, I found a ton of really good content on having a servant's heart uh, during a time of crisis, and really a lot of it was from a business perspective and being a leader in business and about how when, you know, your company is in turmoil about how you can really leverage that by having a servant's heart. And, um, and there's, we could have made an entire study around just that. But the point is, we don't have to look very far to find someone that we can serve. And then finally, I think that we should look ahead to the reward. You know, oftentimes, when I get frustrated with things, uh, sometimes it, uh, it, it becomes difficult to look past whatever that problem is. And <clears throat> used to, when I was younger, I, the thing that I always told myself uh, to try to change my perspective is, you know, whatever it was, uh, that, that it'll be over when you're 20, you know, it'll be over when you're 20. And that's what I tell myself, and, you know, I, in my mind, I was never going to make it to 20, and so, you know, uh, I just thought by the time I did, whatever it is I was dealing with uh, would be over. Well, I'm a dec that had expired a decade ago, uh, and really the, what I've replaced with that, that I, has almost become, become a joke to the people who I'm around a lot of the times. Uh, is rather than saying that, if I get frustrated with something, or we're working on a project and it's not just go going just right, what I tell myself is that it's all going to burn up in the end, you know? It's all going to burn up one day. And, you know, having that perspective helps me think, you know, this is, this is just, you know, just stuff that we're dealing with and just do what we're supposed to do and get through it. And uh, so, you know, I think that, again, we should look ahead of the reward. Again, Jesus promised that he went to prepare a place for us. 
and we don't know exactly what that place looks like, but we know that it is far beyond anything that, that we can experience here on Earth. I, a few years ago, I, um, I uh, uh, well, last night when I was uh, looking at some of this, I got distracted and I got on LinkedIn and I saw a realtor that had posted a house for sale in Dallas that was $8.9 million home. Uh, and so, of course, I had to click on the pictures and see what $8.9 million could possibly buy somebody. And it was just, uh, as you can imagine, overly extravagant home. It had a full-size gym, you know, a bowling alley, uh, a hibachi grill. The pool was, of course, one of a kind and just way over the top. And, and I thought about that, you know, it's, it's going to burn up, you know. And, uh, and you know, it, even that $8.9 million house, has, has no comparison uh, to, to the home that Christ has prepared for us and he, that he has promised as a reward for the faithful. So in conclusion, I just, uh, again, I just really wanted to share some of that with you so that, that, that you don't allow the disruption uh, that we've experienced uh, to, uh, to cause you to have a negative outlook. You know, think about all the times and the people that God has used uh, along with disruption to uh, bring a positive change. If there's any way the church uh, can help anyone present, we'd ask that you come to be sensing.